could not better be, better be, better be. It could not possibly, no, sirrah, sirrah, sirree. Songs could not gayer be, sound your do, re or me, re me, fa so la si, fa la la la, follow me. Why be gloomy? Cut thy nose off to spite thy face. Listen to me. A nose is hard to replace. Skies could not bluer be. Hearts in love truer be. I'd say for you or me, life couldn't possibly not, even probably life couldn't possibly better be. Life could not better be on a medieval spree. Nights full of chivalry, villains full of villainy. You'll see as you suspect, maidens fair and silks bedecked. Each tried and true effect for the umpteenth time we resurrect. We did research, authenticity was a must. Zeus, did we search, and what did we find? A lot of dust. After the dust had cleared, half the cast had a beard, and I'm the one, as you can see, for whom the bell tolls merrily. Shakespeare and Francis Bacon would they declare which one wrote this and they both said get out of there which brings us to the plot plot we've got quite a lot as it unfolds you'll see what starts like a scary tale ends like a fairy tale and life couldn't possibly better be. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of the Slumgullion, America's only podcast. I am Jeff. Three hours behind me is Scott. And as a special guest, we are joined by Mrs. C. Hello, Mr. and Mrs. C. How are thee? <laughs> I'm fine, Jeff. I'm not going to start LARPing. I'm just not. I'm not. I'm not oh, going to talk. I'm not going to talk in flowery, high Middle Ages, old English. I'm. I'm just. I'm not. I'm not going to put on a doublet and hose. I'm not going to don a jerkin. I'm not going to carry a halberd. It's just not going to happen. I want to see you in a doublet and jerkin. Me prime. too. That, that's for our prime members. <laughs> <laughs> for an additional fifteen dollars a month. Oh, so that's where we're getting the pay page finally. <laughs> that's where the Patreon money's going. Yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. going, going to my sexy medieval cosplay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> 
Well, we have a double UMC for you today. We will get to number two in a second, but Mrs. C has joined us for part one, and now a real fast backstory. For those of you who didn't see it on Twitter, a couple of days ago, I happened to find a classic Danny Kaye film, The Court Jester, which was on Amazon Prime. I mentioned it to Scott, and Scott mentioned it to his good lady wife, who they all we all happen to be fans of this classic Danny Kaye movie. And I do believe that we all have not seen it in quite some time. Is that correct? Yes. I haven't seen it maybe since I was a teenager. It's been a long time. I saw it on the big screen at the Babo Cinema, and I was always reluctant to watch it on TV on a crappy little, you know, 21-inch RCA because it's such a vibrant, colorful picture. For a comedy, it has sort of a an epic Vista Vision sort of sweep to it, possibly because that's the sort of film it was parodying. It just always seemed sort of cramped on TV. I didn't, I didn't enjoy it as much. Now... My first exposure to the court jester actually was on TV. I was in grade school, and in my music class, our teacher was a huge musical theater fan. She actually took us to the high school to see a production of Brigadoon. Oh. And that was the first time that I had seen Brigadoon. And even as a kid, while I didn't like the play, I remember they did the opening number down on McConaughey Square. They had the whole cast coming through the audience. And that blew my little seven or eight year old mind away. Yeah, breaking breaking that fourth wall early on. That's where it came from, boys and girls. But that same teacher showed us the court jester. That was also my introduction to Danny Kay. Anyway, as I said, it was it is on Amazon Prime, and I believe we have all watched it. And first off, holy fuck, does that movie look gorgeous? Oh, beautiful. Better, I think, than it ever has on television. Now, now, did you say that this is a restored print? It has to be. Has I mean, be. look at the look look at the colors and how sharp everything is. That like 4K remastered. I remember the last time I saw it, it did not look that clear at all. No, I, you know, I. I I wonder if this is the start of a trend. A lot of studios who have classic films in their libraries have made coin by releasing them to DVD or selling them to streaming services. But with the prevalence of high-def televisions, I think some of those muddy old prints that molded away in a subterranean vault for a long, long time and then just got immediately transferred onto disc, that's not going to cut it anymore. They're really going to have to start spending a little bit of money to digitize and, and restore them. Fortunately, digital restoration is a lot less expensive than painstakingly recovering the color and re- removing the tint of time frame by frame from 35 millimeter prints. But still, I was astounded because even when I saw it on the big screen many, many years ago, it was nice. It was better by far than the prints you'd see on television. But still, it was a 35 millimeter print rented from a film distributor or borrowed from some library's collection. So it wasn't stunning. You know, it, it had the usual wear and tear. And this was absolutely pristine. Uh, It was stunning how much more of the picture came out, how many more little things I noticed this time, Uh, just because they were, everything was popping. It was a veritable visual popcorn machine. (laughs) And I just, I just have to say, especially since it's been a while since I have seen the Manchurian candidate, dear Lord, Angela Lansbury was gorgeous as a young lady. She was so beautiful. You know, she was oddly attractive in the, Manchurian candidate. Oh, I completely (laughs) agree with you on that. I mean, as evil, as stone cold, wicked a witch as she was in the Manchurian candidate, I I had a a very confused reaction to her when I first saw that movie as an adolescent. (laughs) It was sort of like, 
half thinking, ooh, she's so pretty, she's really sexy, and half thinking, gee, I wish she was my mom. She's, oh, no. I mean, at least she takes an interest in her son. Oh, 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 oh. but anyway, skipping off of that Oedipal issue, um, (laughs) one of the things that that also blew me away rewatching The Court Jester for the first time in decades is how amazing the film holds up. It's still really funny. It is still really flipping funny. I feel like it's funnier now as an adult. That there were a lot of things in it that I liked as a child because just they were goofy and those sort of things that appealed to the to the immature mind. But there's a lot of really sophisticated wordplay and some double entendres and just some let's face it, eye fucking that goes on between the <laughs> characters. Well, there's patter, the well, uh, chalice from the palace and the brew that is true. There's the patter. I'm honest. I honestly am starting to believe that my love of patter came from seeing that movie. Could be. I mean, there's there's several patter songs in it. The whole the Duke, the Duchess, and the Doge. Oh, that's right. Well, the Duke did what a Duke does. <laughs> Get it? Got it. Good. Good. And I mean, you look at and just look at that cast. Like I said, I mean, for the, for those of you who don't know, you have Danny Kaye, Angela Lansbury, Basil um, um, John Carradine, freaking Basil Rathbone, John Carradine. I'm going to be politically incorrect here for a minute. A, bu- a bunch of midgets. I mean, how can you go wrong? Yeah, actually, I think there were only a handful of midgets and that most of them were kids playing midgets. Because if you look at it. Their heights and builds change radically from shot to shot. Oh. Another thing I noticed. You that's, a valid point there. I didn't even realize that until you just said it, but you're right. That's the dark side of uh, an improved print. You notice that there's some, <laughs> oops, oh, there's a wire there. And oops, there's a child doubling for a midget there. But, you know, it doesn't really take you out of the movie. I want to talk real quickly about the people behind the camera, because I'm sure we're going to be fawning over the cast. And rightly so, because it's one of the best casts for, for a comedy from that era. But it was written and directed, this is the thing that interests me, by Norman Panama and Melvin Frank, who were the screenwriters for several previous Danny Kaye projects. And they managed to wind up in the director's chair. I, I assume they either alternated, sat in each other's lap, or had two chairs. I don't know how they worked it out. But that's pretty amazing when you get the, the screenwriters who graduate to actually running the show. And the result was probably their best movie. They started off, there were two guys who were school friends, and they broke into radio writing for Bob Hope and writing gags for Groucho Marx. And that led to them writing some of the Hope Crosby Road pictures at Paramount. Then they, okay. gra- they graduated to A films like... Uh, Mr. Blandings Builds His Dream House with Cary Grant. Uh, They wrote White Christmas. Oh, wow. Okay. They wrote the screen adaptation of Little Abner, which, as weird as that movie is, was an enormous hit. It's a crazy weird movie. Crazy weird movie. Well, (laughs) we might want to tackle that one day. And The Court Jester was their third and last film with Danny Kaye because, I mean, I'm assuming the reason is, it bombed spectacularly at the box office. It was the most expensive comedy ever made up to that point. It had a $4 million budget in 1955, and it pulled in dismal numbers, only making back half its budget in its original release, which, to my mind, sort of makes it the Ishtar of its day. Ah. Unlike Ishtar, however, it had staying power. It became popular over the years through endless showings on TV and snaring young minds like Jeff's, and it is now rightly regarded as a classic, which I guess, if I want to draw a conclusion from that, proves that Americans in 1956, when it was released, were just as stupid as we are today. You know, and actually, 
maybe more stupid, because at least we're not gadding about in high-waisted, high-sheen, gabardine trouser. I mean, at least I'm not. I, I can't see Jeff from where I'm sitting. <laughs> All right, so so Mrs. C, um, like I said, Scott said that this is one of your favorite films, correct? Yes. Okay, so now, so I, I do. I, I really want to know what what did what did you say when um, Scott told you that it was that I said it was on Amazon Prime and that you know you guys were get, you guys were all set to watch it the next day. Oh, I said, I said yes, yeah. Please let's watch this. It's been so long. I was so thrilled to see it again. And I, I have to ask, the first time it got, the, the, the first Vista shot, like after Life Couldn't Possibly Better Be, which is such a wonderful opening number. It, I love it. it. It's a great opening number. It works. At, I mean, I, I could see that on stage. I've been singing it since we watched it. I think Mary said to me, why was this never made into a Broadway musical? Yes. It's it's perfect for it. It's, but the, hey, it could still happen today. I have to admit, while I was watching it, I was thinking the same thing this time. I was like, this should be on stage. And what I love about, the, I, mean, I love this film from the very beginning, because it opens up with Danny Kaye in full Motley Fool garb. Yes. And he's... Life could not better be. <laughs> and the, <laughs> what I like is this, be. the song changes to comment on the credits as they roll by. Yep. Yes. Which is yep. breaks the fourth wall. Which in a very theatrical way, it's very much hearkening back to the origins of the jester and the Harlequin character, which mm-hmm. because they were they would break the fourth wall and they would address the audience. So I thought that was I thought it was fun when I saw it years ago. And then as I learned more about the history theater, I thought, wow, that's a smart joke too. One of the things that I picked up on this time that I never did before. So it's a film that keeps on giving. It bears repeated view. Yes. What got me this time, and I mean, I remember the song, okay. I but this, but like I said, I haven't seen the film, and so this is the first time that I've listened to lyrics in forever. Is I don't know the name of the song, but it's the song. It's the Patter song that he sings about being a jester. Oh, uh, the last line is a jester is nobody's fool. Right. The title of the song is the maladjusted jester. Okay. The last line, the the last line is, and a jester unemployed is nobody's fool, which again, works on many different levels. Just the writing of that song is the one that's where I was sitting there, like this time watching it, just going, this is motherfucking brilliant. If I'm not mistaken, that's written by his wife, Sylvia Fine, and it's got all of her hallmarks, including just these internally rhyming lines like, uh, the Spanish were clannish, but I wouldn't vanish. (laughs) (laughs) And people have heard for years about the vessel with the pestle and the chalice from the palace bit as a comedy classic. But again, watching it again for the first time in decades it works. It's still freaking funny. So funny. And they do it enough times that it becomes an earworm for every member of the audience, but they don't do it that one too many times that it's no longer funny. How they manage that bit of alchemy, I don't know. But it's both, it's still funny, and yet you remember it, and you probably, I had it in my head still, I mean, not seen it in 30 years, Yeah. when it unspooled this time. And it was still very funny. According to Danny Kaye's daughter, Dina, I believe her name is, uh, for the rest of his life, whenever anyone recognized him in public, they almost invariably asked him to recite that tongue twister from the court chest. Yeah. And he never, he never refused. He always oh, recited wow. it flawlessly and verbatim and with great gusto. Oh, that is just, that is just so, so 
God, I love this movie. So, folks, seriously, seriously, if you have Amazon Prime and you have not seen The Court Jester, or if you have not seen it in a long time, I think I can speak for all of us assembled when I say, watch this freaking film. Yay, verily, yay. <laughs> <laughs> and before before we end this particular discussion, I honestly can't think of an irritating thing so let's go around and give a fascinating thing about this movie. Okay, uh, I'll start. The uh, the scene Mary just mentioned where they're walking Danike through his knighthood and the, the, <laughs> the, the, the king gets bored and they, is it, they, they speed it up. They start speeding it up. Um, that was, they used some undercranking. You know, they, they speeded up the film in some places. But a lot of it was just incredibly precise movements, incredibly yep. well-drilled, well-choreographed movements. And the way they did it was they hired a Civil War reenactors group from Michigan who were well-practiced in drill. And oh my goodness. they brought them in just for that scene, put them all in, in fake armor, and had them march around until they got it, until they got the shot. <laughs> That's awesome. I found that. Wow. Awesome. That I did not I have learned my new thing for the day. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. Okay. Mrs. Me. C. <laughs> um, at the end when Danny Kay's got the baby and he's like unveiling the He's flashing the, the butt. He's flashing He's flashing the, the butt. I love that. And he has to flash it twice to the false king. Yeah. And just, it's just his, one of my favorite bits. It's hilarious because he's flashing a baby's butt, but he's looking so sternly at people. Like, obey the butt. <laughs> obey the butt. Exactly. <laughs> you must bow to the butt. Bow to the butt. There you go. <laughs> I think for me, the most fascinating thing is, again, even as much as I remembered the wordplay and the patter was rediscovering just how brilliant the wordplay and the patter is. And again, this is why I think I'm pretty sure this movie affected me at a way early age and got me into that patter style of comedy because that Duke, Duchess and Doge speech or um, sequence of lines is just beyond brilliant. And a side fascinating thing, I love Basil Rathbone when he's in comedies. He, so good. You never for a He cent, doesn't break. Yeah, it's like, did somebody tell Basil this was a comedy? Because he's not <laughs> acting like it is, which makes it all the funnier. I mean, he's in scenes with Danny Kaye, who is being very funny, and he's playing it and he's matching him, but he is in no way trying to be funny himself. It's like he never tries to steal focus, and yet he always makes an impression. That's he's just, the best uh, straight man ever. Exactly. I mean, I remember what was he was also in. Wasn't he in Comedy of Terrors as well? Yes, he was. Right. Those two movies. I remember walking out just thinking he, this this man should have done more comedies because <laughs> you're right. He is. He was. He's just a phenomenal, phenomenal straight man. Mrs. C, is there anything else you would like to add before we say farewell to thee? There was something. It was in my head. And then you started talking about Basil. Rathbone, and then I was like, oh yeah, he was great. Um, I can't bring it up now. It's not coming out. I've got constipation in the brain. Need a little mental dukalax. Yeah. Uh, watch the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Okay. That'll soften your brain. If not, ah. your <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want a little mental dukalax, there you go. If, if not your stools, definitely your brain. <laughs> 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 well, people should watch Robin Hood with Errol Flynn and watch The Court Jester 
Because they're basically the same. Side by side. And enjoy. Ooh, that would make a... You're right. That would make a wonderful double feature. Doesn't it? Holy crap. Holy crap. You just shook something loose in my brain. That was the last time I saw The Court Jester before we watched it on TV. I saw a double feature of the 38 Robin Hood and The Court Jester at the Balboa Cinema. They were always programming stuff like that. It's one of the reasons I love that place. And it, you're right. It was seen, it was great. It was amazing. Do you remember seeing the Robin Hood, the cleaned up Technicolor version at the Egyptian? Yes. Oh, probably a ten or eleven years ago. They oh, they had a, a Technicolor festival at the at the American Cinematheque in Hollywood, and they showed a vault quality dye transfer Technicolor print of the Thirty Eight Robin Hood. That was the most amazing. Literally, when it came up and people were like, oh, people gasped. Ooh. Every frame. It was that beautiful. Every frame was a, was a Renaissance masterpiece. And it they was, also showed um, War of the Worlds. Oh, right. The George Powell version. Also, pretty stunning. I mean, you unfortunately, it was such a great print that you could not miss the many, many wires on the Martian war machines. But, <laughs> but you didn't care because everything else looked so good. It looks so beautiful. Speaking of revivals, I do not know if you heard about this or not, guys, but King Kong, the original 1930s King Kong, is returning to theaters. I told Scott about it. Yeah, it's a, it's a Fathom event, uh, I think. Yes. I have never seen King Kong in theaters. I am going to that. When I was a kid, I wrote a science fiction story for uh, an English class, and the teacher said, why don't you uh, send this to Ray Bradbury? And I said, in my mind, yeah, why don't I grow wings and fly to the moon? But um, I did. Sorry. I did. And he wrote me back and invited me to come see him talk. Whoa. He was an amazing guy. The best storyteller ever. Not just on the on the printed page. He was just an amazing raconteur. He told a story about how his favorite movie was King Kong. And he told a friend, oh, you have to, I can't believe you've never seen it. You have to watch it. He saw it on TV and he goes, eh, you know, it was okay, but it, it was kind of creaky and I don't really I don't really get it. He goes, no, 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 no. You have to see Kong in the big screen where he's 70 feet tall. Then you'll get it. And I've always remembered that. So I've got to find a way to see this because I haven't seen King Kong in a theater in probably 20 years. You have to go see it. Find a way. Be like life and find a way. Ha! <laughs> and on that note, Mrs. C, thank you for joining us to talk about the court jester. It is, as always, a great pleasure. I am so glad I was able to talk clearly and without pain. Indeed. (laughs) Indeed. And about a film that is just wonderful. And we'll be right back with part two of the UMC after this deep, dark confession. I swear to God, I think there's something wrong with me. I, I, I have tried to live my life as a good person. I have done everything that I'm supposed to do to be a good person. But God help me. I kind of like the Sonic movie. we're back. That's uh, something I I could have gone my whole life without ever knowing. But anyway, welcome to the Unknown Movie Challenge. 
The failure of the court jester at the box office proves that attracting an audience is no guarantee of quality. I mean, a lot of people have gone to see a lot of Michael Bay movies. And our next film is also in the process of bombing as we speak. Will it also find its reputation burnished by the years? Well, if you're me and you sat through Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn, the answer is no. But I'm just one man. Fortunately, we have another point of view represented. Unfortunately, he's also a man. We probably should have had at least one woman on the panel, but both Mary and Blanche wisely declined to sit through this movie once, let alone twice, which I guess in itself expresses a point of view. So there you go. There's the woman's reaction. No, thank you. And here we are with ours. Yes, movie number two in this UMC-UFC cage match is Margot Robbie's reward for breaking out of Suicide Squad and soaking up all the love and attention. Uh, now it has been now it has been retitled Harley Quinn Birds of Prey. I'm just calling it DC's Deadpool. Well, yeah, uh, DC's wannabe Deadpool. Absolutely. No question of that. But then again, that's pretty much DC's MO. Justice League was DC's wannabe Avengers. And uh, DC wants things. You can tell it wants things. And you know what? That's de rigueur for good storytelling. I mean, as, as you pointed out, every, every Disney animated classic has its I want song. And if DC were a Disney princess, it would sing, I want to make as much money as Marvel. But uh, I like the Disney princesses. This wish is not coming true. Not at all. And and I'm going to say, in this case, it's kind of sad because I genuinely enjoyed this movie. Yeah, I don't think it's impossible to enjoy this movie at all. You can absolutely go to this movie and have a good time. Lots of people are. It has fans clamoring and singing its praises on Twitter. You not- see, and that's the thing. Before I saw it, I'd seen like the initial reviews. And I mean, a lot of the reviews were very good. So I went and saw it and I had a, I thoroughly enjoyed myself and I wanted to make sure. So I took the other half of the brain to see it. And we, we, we used Falcor beforehand and he went in, he wanted to enjoy too. We both went in just wanting to have a good time. That was all we wanted out of this movie. We just wanted to be entertained. And like I said, I have seen it twice. I believe you said you saw it twice too. And both times, except for one little thing, which we'll get to, I was highly entertained by this movie. I love the look of the film. I think visually it's interesting. You can tell that the fight scenes were choreographed by the guy who did the John Wick films. Mm-hmm. Because I just I I thoroughly found the fight scenes entertaining, and most of all, and I, and you I think you will agree with me on this. This movie has a huge does something that no um, superhero film has done in years, and that includes Marvel. And this is one place where I think DC has finally outshined Marvel. It made a quote unquote superhero film where the ending wasn't a CGI. I splooge fest. No, but it was also it also did the impossible in making me, who has I, I think a fairly well known disdain, if not outright loathing, for CGI spooge fests in the third act, kind of missed the spooge. Seriously? Yeah, the film was a little spooge deficient. Now, granted, she was not battling uh, otherworldly, superpowered, supernatural world beaters, so there was really little room to baste in the spooge, but. I have to disagree with you about the fight scenes. Uh, Let me just start with that. 
The fight scenes were very elementary. The choreography was not at all surprising. There was no wit in it. And lacking wit, there really wasn't any sort of creative or shocking brutality. It was just, a lot of it was just people bouncing around. Literally, sometimes in that funhouse sequence at the end, literally just bouncing on a trampoline. I've seen better fight scenes in a jolly jumper. I'm sorry. I don't know what they paid uh, Chad Stahowski, but he committed highway robbery because none of that shows up on the screen. She has a few good scenes. I mean, the scene in the evidence locker, there, there's some nice work with the baseball bat. There's a few nice choreographed moves, but you can tell that Margot Robbie did not train for 18 months to do this. It was all very grounded. It, it was the sort of fight scene that I would have found eminently satisfying had it been in a, say, Netflix Marvel show. I'm going to hop in here. I'm going to jump in on here you with this. I completely disagree with you on this one, Scott. Mm, well, uh, then we're going to we're going to come to blows, and I hope that we can get a good choreographer in, unlike <laughs> Birds of Prey. <laughs> I'm not saying it's uniformly bad. The fight scene at the end in the in the funhouse was not funhouse quality fun. It was just a lot of jumping up on trampolines. It was at best roller derby quality violence. It was not big budget, big screen violence. It was not cleverly coordinated. It was not carefully done. It, it was not intricate. It was not inventive. It was just sort of chaotic. And I think they played up the chaos in order to hide how bad the choreography was. I'm not saying it's, that's true throughout the whole movie. I mean, I really like the scene in the evidence locker. But unlike, say, um, Charlize Theron in Atomic Blonde, who was able to to memorize fairly lengthy sequences of combat and allowed them to do uh, long takes, this, she, she mastered a couple of moves, uh, a few combinations, and then they just shot it from different angles. So, I mean, she's basically one up, but barely one up on Lee Van Cleef in the Master TV show. I don't feel like Margot Robbie wanted to play this character. And if she wanted to, to give it its due, she really should have buckled down and trained for eight months. But she didn't. She's she's in demand and she made a lot of other projects. With, with a film like this, you've got to have actors who can handle action or who, who are willing to commit to learning the stunts enough to make it believable because they didn't have the CGI splooge to rely on. They needed to supply something else and they supplied something but I don't feel like it was adequate. Okay. See, now I do. I had absolutely no problem with that end fight scene. You are right about the I, – I will totally give you the simplicity of the fight scene, the, of, of that final fight scene. But for me, okay – this movie, I know I was calling it DC's Deadpool, but another thing that this film reminded me of, especially in that final fight scene, what that final fight scene reminded me of was Batman 66. Uh, yeah. In the set design, yeah. everything about that final fight scene just screamed Batman 66 to me. Okay, I see your point. It could be that that was a stylistic choice, that that was a wink and a nod. But I didn't get that. And if I didn't get that, then probably a lot of people didn't get it because I, I was a fan of the Batman TV show. And right. So I, I think you're probably right, but I don't think it was worth sacrificing. So I, I don't know. I mean, I didn't expect it to be John Wick, but I expected it to be better than Burt Ward. Okay. All right. I, I, I like that analogy. Whether I agree with it or not, that's a fun analogy. Thank you. Now, I, I don't want to get the wrong impression that I did that I disliked the movie or I did not find it entertaining. I volunteered to go see it a second time just so I had my facts reasonably straight. There are movies we have done right. where you could not have paid me enough to go see them a second time. Right. 
This was not one of them. I went willingly. I was entertained the second time, just as I was the first time. I didn't I didn't stagger out of it groaning and bitching by any means. But absent the podcast, I can tell you there's absolutely no way I would have ever gone to see this a second time. And there's probably no way I would have ever sought it out uh, on streaming a second time. I mean, there's some movies like, oh, I can't wait till that hits streaming. Yeah, this this was definitely not the case. But it wasn't one that I, I hated. It's just I felt like I got everything out of it I was going to get out of it the first time. It passed its two hours very pleasantly, but I don't feel like it did more than that. Unfortunately, we're at a world historical point in the evolution of this type of film that, yeah, that was fun. It isn't enough. It's a female-led action picture. So already, unfortunately, there's a double standard operating. Just as women in the workplace have to be twice as good as a man to be thought just as good, these films really have to deliver at the box office, and so far it hasn't. It also wanted to make social political statements, which is absolutely fine. I'm completely here for that. I love when they successfully pull that out in this kind of movie. But doing that is a risk. It provides haters with another reason to hate. And it may have driven some people away from seeing the movie, or it may just have created bad buzz that made even John and Black you have gotten who hell they went to see the great wall for the show they really didn't want to go see this so i feel like there was a lot riding on it and it did not achieve that if we're just going to judge it by the standards of every other film yeah i had fun i enjoyed it maybe it's just because i didn't go in you know wanting not not wanting what's what i'm looking for i didn't care about all of the other stuff i didn't care about the points that it was trying to prove or that it needed to prove which you raised some very valid points i'm not arguing any of that with you at all just for me personally i didn't give a shit about any of that i just wanted to have a good time you're absolutely right that most people are going to feel exactly the same way and the first time going in that's how i felt because i had avoided reading too much about it all i knew was it was not doing well at the box office and i don't care about that because right Absolutely, some of the best movies I've ever seen, and some of some of the movies I love to this day, bombed at the box office. Galaxy Quest, for instance. I don't think that's in any way a reliable arbiter of quality. Let me boil it down to where I think the film falls short as an entry into the DCEU and as a stepping stone to more films in this genre and more female-led films. It feels like a TV movie. If it had debuted on the DC Universe streaming service, People would be going out of their minds for it. They would be just crazy nuts on Twitter, constantly tweeting about, this is the most amazing thing that's ever been done for television. Instead, they're being asked to pay 12 bucks for a movie ticket and a fresca and get a movie that looks like it should have been on TV. And by that, I mean it looks kind of cheap and the scale is small, even though it had a reported budget of, I think, just south of $85 million dollars. You know, you know what? That's actually that that TV movie comment. And if that had been on a streaming service, that's actually I will give you that one, Scott. Thank you. I will absolutely give you that. I, 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 I think you are right. If this had been on a streaming service first, like if this had been on, even not even on the DC app, if this had been on Netflix or something like that. Yeah. And, and Any a, sort of streaming service. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. Thank you. And that really is a shame. It is a shame. Marvel comes up with these amazing casting coups. This film has a TV movie cast. I mean, Journey Smollett-Bell, who plays Black Canary, and who I really, really like in the role, who I think really steps up, is a TV actress. Ella J. Basco, I think her name is, who plays Cassandra Kane, TV actress. Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who plays the Huntress. Rosie Perez. It, yeah. Mary Elizabeth Winstead, yep. Yeah, she's, she's a TV actress. People have been trying and failing to turn into a movie star since Scott Pilgrim 
And it's just not happening. Nope. Now, what I have heard, a little bit of the behind-the-scenes chatter, is that Margot Robbie, who also produced, who was the driving force behind this whole thing, didn't want to take the chance that anyone else would do to her what she did to everyone else in Suicide Squad. In other words, become the breakout character. The result is that this movie doesn't have the draw of a Marvel film where even supporting parts, hell, even especially supporting parts, are cast with recognizable names and and some amazingly fun cameos. Some very, I can't believe they got that person to come in to do this part, types of roles. This very much seems like, I hate to say it, but very much seems like a movie that was thrown together, uh, financed from a bunch of foreign territories on, on the strength of one star's name, and then they all decamped and went up and shot it in Toronto. And the other thing is the movie had a convoluted and in some cases traumatic gestation at least judging by the script that leaked during production and comparing it to what made it to the screen after rewrites and reshoots. Did you, did you read the, the script that was floating around? I did not, know. I didn't either. But I, yeah, I, I did not read it. I didn't either because I, I, I tend not to do that. But I did hear stuff. And frankly, that kind of thing only endears a movie to me more. It's hard to make a film. Everything's a compromise. You never have enough money or time. I'm, I'm sure I've told this story before, but the first movie I was hired to work on, I arrived on set two weeks before the start of principal photography. A lot of it hadn't even been cast. The original writer had walked off the project in disgust a few days before, and the director greeted me with words to this effect. Yeah, the script is such a mess, I can't understand why the studio greenlit it. That was the director. Wow. I am on Birds of Prey's side. I absolutely am rooting for it. But I do think it had some problems the filmmakers didn't manage to fix. One of them is just the look of it. I don't have any complaints about the cast. Everyone is doing their absolute best to fill the roles. Some of them doing very, very well. And, you know, Margot Robbie is endlessly watchable as Harley Quinn. I mean, I I generally like her in most things, but she really is magnetic. I mean, if, if the film was just Harley Quinn going through her day, it would still be very watchable even if there was no plot. And there was next to no plot anyway, let's face it. It was basically a... uh, No, absolutely. It was a chase movie. If there's anything that irritates me about it that's outside the actual frame, like if I were to choose to complain about something that was not on screen, it might be the adaptation. It might be what they decided to do with these characters. I mean, as I said, I like Journey Smollett Bell. I, I, I like her as an actress. I like what she did. Odd that she was playing Dinah Lance because... That was nowhere near what that character is. It was sort of a bizarre amalgam of like the the Frank Miller Catwoman. And Hmm. I don't even know. And then what they did to Cassandra Cain made her unabsolutely recognizable. Had nothing to do with the character Cassandra Cain. Don't even know why they used that name other than the fact that they owned it. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. And now, Grant, again, this is this is me. When it got to the end and she's doing her little her little Deadpool voiceover wrap up thing. And she talks about, you know, the three people who are fighting crime as the birds of prey. But when I walked out of the movie, I was like, you know what? I want to see a film with just those three now. Yeah, I don't think that's ever going to happen. I don't think it's ever going to happen either, which is a shame. But like I said, when I walked out of it, I wanted to see that movie. So for me, you know, it it, it did its job, which I know a lot of people were sitting there going, you know, the, why? and I agree calling it Birds of Prey or, or the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn, which I think is a wonderful title, did really do its service, did a disservice because you don't even really see the Birds of Prey until Act 3. Yes, uh, late in Act 3. 
late, late, late in Act Three. But I mean, so I mean, it, th- th- that title in itself is admittedly kind of a disservice. But when it got to the end, I walked out going, "Okay, I now officially want a Birds of Prey movie." You're right; we're never going to get one. But this movie made me want one. So in that respect, it did its job. It also managed to take good actors and miscast them. Like people who have been good and were clearly trying their best, but had no chance in this. For instance, Mary Elizabeth Winsett. I love her. I have never not liked her in anything. Don't hate her in this. But she is so not Helena Bertinelli. She is so not this cold, calculating woman animated by rage and revenge. It's like she was in some, some mumblecore movie. They kind of they kind of played her they kind of played her real fast. They kind of played her as Huntress as Holtzman. <laughs> they tried to play her for laughs and it didn't work. They t- like yeah. instance, they, they tried to make a running joke out of everyone called her the crossbow killer, but she wanted them to call her Huntress. Now that joke's been used a thousand times. I mean, hell, that's how we first met Chris Pratt's Star Lord in the first trailers for Guardians. Uh, right. Oh, I'm Star Lord. Who? It's who? I mean, you can make that work, but they ju- they couldn't land the joke. And because of it was weirdly edited, and the the timing was just a fraction off. And this is not the actor's fault at all. When they're going, it's the crossbow killer. I'm not the crossbow killer. And she kept trying to say, stop telling me that. For fuck's sake, it did not land. And it's too bad. But part of the reason it didn't land is we only met her late. And when we did meet her, a lot of what we saw of her, one, she was played by a young child. So we didn't even see that much of her. And two, a lot of it was Harley's voiceover. And we just saw her. So we got no sense of her personality. So doing, trying to do character-related jokes, like, oh, don't piss her off about this. She's very sensitive about this. None of that worked because we didn't know her. We had no clue. You, you've got to establish your character's before you can get laughs from a character. It's odd. There was too much Harley and not enough Harley. They needed to pick one. Either she's part of an ensemble like Suicide Squad, or she's the star. And the movie felt diffuse to me. Okay. All right. All right. Well, on that note, let's get to the fascinating, irritating thing. Um, I will start, since you've been complaining for most of this. (laughs) Giggity. I will start with the irritating, and this is something that I do agree with you on. While I wanted, well, like I said, as I walked out wanting to see a Birds of Prey movie, I was annoyed, I was kind of irritated by the fact that a movie called, when I sought Birds of Prey, or the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn, the title characters before Harley Quinn, you don't even see them until the last really half hour of the film. Yep. That did kind of get to me. But but again, like I said, I was having fun the entire movie, so it didn't bother me that much. But that did, out of everything, that did genuinely irritate me the most because I did want to see more of them in this movie. There was wasted opportunity. I did want to see, especially, I wanted to see more of Huntress because I was like, okay, why is she like this? Mm-hmm. I really want to know where 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 did this Holtzman personality come from? I find this interesting. Why aren't we seeing more of this? And fascinating for me, and this is entirely a performance, I fucking loved Ewan McGregor. Yeah. Yeah, Ewan McGregor was so fucking over the top Batman 66 villain, and I adored it. Do you think he was playing it gay? Oh, absolutely. Okay, because I I know originally that was the way the character was written in earlier scripts. And I didn't know really if it survived up to this. Oh, and now granted, they did, they didn't overtly say it, but in my head, Canon, he and Victor's ass, absolutely. Yeah, that. Me too. Me too. That's one of the reasons. 
I was never waiting for a moment when Victor was going to betray him or sell him out yep. in any way because I thought, yep. no, Victor loves him. You can mm-hmm. Oh, no. In my head canon, they are very much a couple. Hugh McGregor had a lot of what I think Peter Stone called uh, gay energy coming off. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. And I know and I know there are some people who are who, uh, there are some people who are going to be, oh, that's that blah, blah, blah. That's anti-gay, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, no, it's, it was just a great fucking character. And what I liked about it was he made him sort of insecure and fussy, but completely sociopathic. I yes. Mean, he, he cared what people thought about him, but he had no conscience. So it's like, yep. I mean, the fact that he was going to spare the daughter of the family he just had literally defaced um, until as she weepingly thanks him, a little snot bubble forms on her nose and he yep. gets grossed out. It, it was a very different energy for a villain to have. And yet not for a second. Did you think it was safe in any way to cross him or to underestimate him? No, there was, I I was, every moment that he was on screen, it was like my eyes were drawn to him. People always used to say I had a bad habit on stage. Even when I wasn't doing anything, I would draw focus just because of the energy that I put out. Oh, okay. That's not your problem. That's the problem with the other actors on stage. But I was chastised a couple of times for pulling focus, and I'd be like, but I'm not fucking doing anything. I'm just standing here. Well, stop it. And I'm like, whatever. But I mean, seriously, every moment that Ewan McGregor was on screen in this film, I could look at nothing else. Yes. One of the things I liked about Journey Smollett-Bell's Black Canary was the fact that she didn't have a lot of illusions about the people she was working for or the world she was living in. Yep. But... You never got the sense that she was a bad person and she was going to do something bad. You thought that the worst thing she could do, the way, and this is, this is something smart the movie did, I give it credit. To establish her as a hero, absent actual heroic actions, when she is not in any way fighting crime, she's only abetting it, is every scene, I watched this the second time, every scene she's, she's in with Ewan McGregor, she is looking at him like, don't say the wrong thing, don't agree too much. Yep. Oh, yes. It's yes. like she, you could see the wheels turning and she's trying to figure out how to play every single second. Because she knows he could turn on a dime and have her throat cut out. So, yep. And that was partly due to what he was doing, but partly the fact that she was seeing what he was doing and she was playing to it. Those scenes mm-hmm. were good. They made me very uneasy. No, I was I was so happy. You know, Ewan McGregor just makes me happy. He doesn't get to do shit like this very often. This is like going back to his Peter Greenway days. You know, I like the only thing that was missing from this performance was him whipping out his dick. Mm, yes. This is the type of movie that in the old days he would black mask would have whipped his dick out at one point. Well, interestingly, in the original script, the whole plot hinged on dick pics of black mask. I I did hear about yeah. that actually. That the the laser encoded information were actually JPEGs of his dick and he was turning the town upside down and murdering everyone in his way to make sure that those didn't get onto the internet. That was the plot. Now, if that you see now they should have kept that if only for you and McGregor's past. That's fucking hysterical. Exactly. And that may have been one of the reasons why they cast him, because of those associations. But he still absolutely created a fascinating character. Now, I wonder how he died originally, because the way he dies... Spoiler. Spoiler. The way he dies in this film is... Okay, can I ask you a question real fast? Real fast, before you go into this, I have to ask you a question because you brought up a point that was going to be my irritating thing. Did that come across as what the fuck just happened to you? Yes, and it came across as something hastily redone in reshoots when the original actor was long gone and they were not going to bring him back. You know, they're having this scene and then all of a sudden, oh, I I stuffed a, a hand grenade down his pants. 
What? Hugh McGregor is out of the movie at that point. Then it's just one stump person throwing another stump person off a pier and then a CGI shot of somebody being blown to smithereens. And it was so abrupt. Yes, that's what I meant by what the fuck just happened. I I said to Walter, I'm like, what the hell just happened? Yeah, there is no, if that was in the original script, I would be surprised because that's the kind of thing where someone would go, okay, but you got to do something about the end. It did not in any way make sense. And it it was so quick. It wasn't only unsatisfying. And it was unsatisfying. It was yes, I agree. It was unclear. It was baffling. I thank you. I'm gl- I'm I'm glad that you felt the same way with that scene because that did kind of make me go meh. Okay, you're fascinating, irritating. Well, we know you're ir- we know you're irritating from the last twenty minutes. <laughs> I really didn't mean to complain this much about the movie. I don't know what it was. I well, think- no, actually, I give you I give you points because you did raise some valid points. Whether I agree with them or not, they are very, very valid and worth discussing. So points on you, Scott. All right, thank you. Maybe it was just the pressure of praising and taking delight in a film like The Court Jester for half an hour was too much for me. And there was just like, no, no, I haven't. I've got a huge reservoir of bile building up behind this dam. I've got to let it go. Sorry. Um, (laughs) Anyway, fascinating, irritating. Yeah, fascinating to me was how much the film works when almost no sequence works on its own. Like the scene where she goes into the police station and she has this single shot breech loading stun gun. And it's great. I mean, I love the smoke effects. I love the glitter. It shoots out. It's, It's witty. It's delightful. And yet... There are cops who are standing there, four or five in a room, staring at her, waiting for her to reload, and then shoot one of them in the face, and then reload, and then shoot another one. Like, you guys got guns too. Why don't one of you shoot this person? Why why don't... Does the glitter have some sort of paralyzing neurotoxin in it? And none of you can move? None of you can reach for your gun belts? It was just badly staged. However, I still enjoyed the sequence, even while I'm going, yeah, that makes no sense. I think I think it's just it just comes down to Margot Robbie has a tremendous amount of charm and I wonder if she's got an ounce of it left because most of it got squeezed out onto the celluloid for this film. Um, <laughs> I liked it. This is a movie I liked in spite of myself. <laughs> so I found that fascinating. Okay, too irritating. Two things, minor thing. One, why don't screenwriters look into Google? It comes with your computer. If you've got an internet connection, it's right there and it's free. So why don't you Google things like, what are the requirements for becoming a psychiatrist? Instead of having her say she's got a PhD and then say she went to medical school. No, psychiatrists are medical doctors. Just pick one. Make her a psychologist, make her a psychiatrist. It's fine. You can have either one, but you can't have both. Just pick a lane. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah. That's, that was yeah. Uh, the other thing is, less irritating than just baffling. Why does this movie have an R rating? It doesn't really need an R rating. And by having one, it shot itself in the foot so far as attracting a broader, i.e. a younger audience. The language isn't hilariously profane like it was in Deadpool. The the violence isn't operatic the way it is in John Wick or a Tarantino film. I guess that's why, actually. You, you nailed it earlier. It clearly wants to be Deadpool. But here's the thing. It's not nearly funny enough to pull it off. And I, that's the big, that's it. That's my one big complaint. If Birds of Prey were funny, almost nothing else would matter. Almost none of these deficiencies would be in any way relevant. If it made you laugh, you wouldn't care that the fight scenes were on the level of the 66 Batman TV show and the stunt sequences huffed and puffed to reach the level of middling A-team episode. It would be fine. It would, in fact, it would, it would add to the comedy, this, this cheesiness. But 
the script wasn't funny enough. It needed punching up desperately. Instead, it just layered on plot that nobody cared about and that it didn't pay off. I mean, it, it had the sense of a film that was just tap dancing away because it got in trouble during production and, and couldn't entirely work its way out. Yeah, that's my biggest irritation. Why wasn't this movie funnier? Understood. Well, all right then. We have one great, great, great phenomenal comedy and one movie that wishes it was a great, great phenomenal comedy, mm -hmm. even though we did both enjoy it to varying degrees. That is all for this week. We'll see you next week with me and Scott bullshitting about something. And until later. Your Majesty, I have a confession. My secret I must now betray I was not a born fool It took work to get this way When I was a lad I was gloomy and sad as I was from the day I was born When other lads giggled and gurgled and wiggled I proudly was loudly forlorn My friends and my family looked at me clamorly Thought there was something amiss When others found various antics hilarious All I could manage was this <laughs> My father he shouted he needs to be clouded His teeth on a wreath I'll hand him My mother she cried as she rushed to my side You're a brute and you don't understand him So they sent for a witch with a terrible twitch To ask how my future impressed her She took one look at me and cried <laughs> He? What else could he be but a jester? A jester? A jester? A funny idea, a jester. No butcher, no baker, no candlestick maker, and me with the look of a fine undertaker and fester. As a jester? Now where could I learn any comical turner was not in a book on the shelf? No teacher to take me to mold me and make me a merry man, fool, or an elf. But I'm proud to recall that in no time at all with no other recourses but my own resources with firm application and determination. I made a fool of myself. I bought a little gun, I learned to shoot. I bought a little horn, I learned to toot. And I can shoot and toot, ain't I cute? I started to travel to try to unravel my mind and to find a new chance. When I got to Spain, it was suddenly plain that the field that appeared was the dance. The Spanish were clannish, but I wouldn't vanish. I learned every step they had planned. The first step of all isn't hard to recall, cause the first step of all is to stand and stand and stand and stand and stand and stand and... They sometimes stand this way for days. Then they get very mad at the floor and start to stamp on it. After all of my practice, the terrible fact is, I made a fool of myself. I sadly decided that dancing as I did to sing was a thing that was surer. I found me a teacher, a crotchety creature who used to sing coloratura. She twisted my chin, pushed my diaphragm, and with a poker she vocalized me. When she said it was best that I throw out my chest, you may gather that rather surprised me. I was on solid ground till I suddenly found that in Venice I was to appear. The Galileo cow was a choppy canal and me a high sea gondolier. I nervously purchased the gondola lurch before the king's palazzo. As I started my song, my voice, it was strong. But my stomach, I fear, was not so. No, sir, Emilio. Oh, sorry. 
I fell overboard, how his majesty roared And before a siesta he made me his jester And I found out soon that to be a buffoon was a serious thing as a rule For a jester's chief employment is to kill himself for your enjoyment And a jester unemployed is nobody's fool 